I want you to look at Galatians and I want you to see something. I'm probably going to cry because I think this is the most magnificent truth I have ever taught. I think it's the most magnificent truth I have ever seen in the Scripture. And I'm sitting here going, with all of the education, with all of the time and all of the ministry, why God? And all of the places I've been, I've been everywhere, man. I, you know, all the places I've been and, and asked not to have been there anymore. If I had known this, it would have changed me. And I'm not going to teach you something that's a mystery. In biblical interpretation, usually the most obvious interpretation is usually what the text obviously says. So I'll give you an example. I've gotten, as you turn to Galatians, um, one of those chapters, Galatians 3, I was emailed this week a, a, a TikTok video that the vaccine is the mark of the beast. All right? So let me just, let me just say something about that, okay? I, because there may be some of you that believe that, and I want to be very sensitive to you. But TikTok is really not a theological, uh, credible source for me. I call that TikTok theology. But there is, a, there is a comment and some statements that the vaccine, in fact, whatever it is, is the mark of the beast. So let me tell you something that the Bible says about truth. In Mark chapter 7, it says, those who receive the mark of the beast will receive the mark of the beast knowingly by pledging their loyalty to the beast. So they will stand there, and so it'd be like Willie over here, Bill over here, standing before the beast, and they ask him, the beast asks him, will you re receive the mark of the beast, or will you keep the seal of the king? And he will have to make a decision. It will not be done covertly. It cannot be done covertly. You will, so when they talk about these implants and all that stuff, there's no, there is no credible theologian on any side of the biblical spectrum of Christianity that believes anything about the mark of the beast is even appearing. Okay? So I want you to understand you have to know what you're receiving. So when you get in the vaccine, somebody, you know, is like, oh, yeah, they put the vaccine in me, got nanorobots. That may be true. I mean, I took it, I glow in the dark, I don't need a nightlight, I have not stumped my toe once, okay? Did you not notice that? I mean, um, no, I'm kidding. And, uh, but I have taken it. And, uh, but, but I respect immensely those who have not. And I'm not going to take sides on that issue. I'm, I, all I can do is do what the truth says, right? And that's what you want, right? And so, but I sent the email back. And the person said, well, I hope so, but I just don't think that's right. And so here's the opening illustration of that. You have to decide either the Bible says what it says or it doesn't. And using that as a segue into what we're talking about, I'm going to try to do all of these notes, these handwritten notes for you, very quickly to teach you something that is simply remarkable. If you came in, if you still struggle with the assurance of your salvation, today there should be no reason by God's grace, that you ever doubt it again if you leave today. None. Because of the work of Jesus Christ. But I'm going to show you why. And it's, it's, it's not that any of you really have, any in the evangelical church really have an issue with we're saved by faith alone. Probably none of you in here 
have any issue with this statement. Man is saved by faith alone. You can only be saved by faith. What most evangelicals have a problem with, Robert, is they don't understand grace alone. What that means. Because when we say grace, someone immediately thinks about legalism or licentiousness. If you apply grace, then people will do whatever they want to. How many people do you know don't do whatever they want to? Starting in the mirror, right? Your mirror, not mine, all right? So let's talk about this. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is contending for the faith because the Jews have, have been Judaizing the Christians there at Galatia who did not know the law, they did not know the moral law, but the universal moral law of God had been written on their hearts prior and the Apostle Paul planted them. Peter has just come in. He is sitting there eating matzo balls and uh, gefilte fish and uh, no, 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 excuse me. He's sitting there eating a pit barbecue with pork and sausage and everything else there and then the men of First Church Jerusalem walk in, James, those guys, they come in and Peter gets up and he goes over and starts eating matzo balls and gefilte fish. He leaves the Gentiles and sits down. G G uh, Paul sees this public sin. He rebukes him in a rather sweet manner for our benefit and his. And he talks to him about, you know, for um, uh, I've been crucified with Christ that I no longer live, but the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Well, that makes a lot of sense because Peter goes and sits down with the Jews and he starts practicing legalism again, okay? Many folks think that the practice of righteousness or rather the failing of righteousness, you ask this question and you've all asked it. I know you have. How could a person be saved that does that? But what is even more ind indicative is that you've asked yourself this. How can I do this and be saved? Okay? Well, guess what? That's answered right here. So like I told you last week when I shouted, and today I'm not going to shout. I'm going to try not to. So I wasn't mad, but I'm, I'm trying not to shout. And I'm sure not mad. But it is, uh, I told you, you need to give yourself a break. If you wanted a title for this sermon... Give yourself a break. It's not very theological, but boy, the meat is. So here we go, because i got to do this, all right? By God's grace, look here at verse 10. For as many, well, here, I even wrote it down here for me. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them, now that no one is justified by the law, I need you to underline that. This is essential. If you struggle with eternal security or assurance, you must underline this verse. You may not feel it, but you need to trust it. It says now that no one is justified before God by the law, for it is evident the righteous shall live by faith. However, the law is not faith, is not of faith. The law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them, he says. So what's he doing? He's quoting the Old Testament. In verse 13, he goes on, he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, as cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Now watch this. Are you getting excited? Look at this. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham, 
might come to the Gentiles who have never heard the law of God, but what is written on their hearts, the universal moral law of God, as we read in Romans 2, the consciousness, the law of God is written on their conscience between what is right and wrong, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So last week, let me just very quickly tell you what I shared with you at the very end. Last week, we saw that living under the curse, the curse is this, when you break the law of God, at one point you have broken all of it, and so you were under condemnation, and you have the penalty of death to be applied to you. That's the curse of the law. You, you fail at one, you fail at all of it. That's the curse of the law. You say, God cannot do that. He couldn't be a loving God. Yes, He can because He's also a holy God. He's infinite holy. And I must tell you this to be honest with you. I shared this with the, the pastors in India Thursday morning um, over Zoom. The love of God does not make all of the other attributes of God bow down to love. They are all co-equal. When you talk about God as love in the scripture, it says God is love, but He's also a consuming fire. That doesn't bow down to the love. And so if we're going to say, well, I don't feel loved at church. Well, you may be at church. You may, during the sermon, you may feel condemned. You, you may feel convicted. Folks, that's not a bad thing because I want you to write this down. I want you to write it down. You're going to love this. I know one lawyer in here. I don't know who he is, but he's going to use this in his law practice. I can guarantee it. And I'll give him credit for saying it. Emotions, ready? Listen. Emotions are a gauge. They're not a guide. So you come to church and you might feel condemned. You might feel under the heavy weight of the scripture. Well, that's a gauge. But it's not a guide. It's a gauge. Say, well, what am I doing that I would feel that way? Right? You say, man, I need it. I need to hear this. This morning my emotion was I am so thankful for the Journey Church. I'm so thankful we're filling this room up. We're going to have to do something, but we've got a plan. But it's a good thing. It's a great thing. And so the reality of it is I'm, I'm in a position where so I need as a gauge, one of the things is I need, to use, I need to go tell them I'm grateful for them. We eat because of you. God uses you so that we can eat and make car payments, house payments, electrical bills, all that stuff. And even some disposable income things and weddings. And so the reality of it is, is that when you feel it, don't just remember, write it down. Emotions, tell this to your kids. Emotions are a gauge. They are not a guide. Amen? I'm going to show you the biblical similarity to that in just a moment. So we saw that when you live under this curse, when you believe that you have to be good enough to be saved, this curse, the more the Bible says the more you try to follow the law, the more you're going to break it. That's the curse too. And the curse only ends in death. Paul tells us in Galatians that it's the tutor to drive us to the cross, but the Galatians have been bewitched and they're still trying to be righteous in their flesh. Okay? That's where we are. So here's what happens. I showed you three things. When you try to live under the curse, this is the first thing that's going to happen to you. You're going to feel frustrated. You're going to be frustrated. Number two, you're going to feel condemnation because the law's ministration is condemnation. The law does not minister righteousness. It ministers condemnation. 
But I will tell you this, the law is the perfect picture of the character of God. It's the perfect picture of the character of God because you know what He likes. It's an explicit picture. And then here's the third thing. Frustration leads to condemnation, which leads to a double curse. You're not only living under the curse of the law, now you're living under your own curse. You're trying and trying, and you sit here and say, how can I be saved? How can another person be saved? How can I stand before God when I have done these things? It's because somebody stood in your place. Well, you know that. You already know that. But I have to prove it to you so you live by it. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to live by. And so here's what we need. We need, a fa we need faith, and this is how I ended last week. We need, it, we need faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 12, 21, that says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we who are sinners may become the righteousness of God. Okay? So that's what we talked about. Now, you can flesh more of this out if you get the Wednesday night deal and just see Brother Truett on that. Okay, so Wednesday night, just quickly, if you were here, there were 17 of you here. This is what I shared. These are high points for you. There's a couple major things for you to get, but I'm not going to regurgitate it all here. All right, so number one, if you want to write this down, you can. Um, Jesus Christ does all to save us. Someone asked me the question. They said, are you a Calvinist? I said, I'm an imputationist. And I asked the person, I said, what do you think a Calvinist is? And, of course, I could ask all of you, and some of you will go, all that or other things. And I said, let me just tell you what a Calvinist is. This is the definition of Calvinist. One sentence. Salvation is through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That's it. That's it. Nothing else. So, okay, yeah, I'm a Calvinist. But I like the word imputation. I'm going to show you this word in a moment. This is an, a biblical word. But so Jesus Christ does all to save us. You have to write this down. And friend, this is the thing. You understand faith, but you need to understand grace. The grace of Christ is that He did everything to save you. He did it. Amen? Okay? Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, number two. Atonement properly focused. The atonement's where He, in my place, condemned He stood. The atonement, the work of Christ on the cross, properly focused when is when we grasp two things. I showed you this Wednesday night. We need to grasp God's justice. We need to grasp God's justice in the fact of His holiness because He's perfectly, purely holy, right? And then we need to see the other side of it is, and that's man's complete void of holiness, period. He has no holiness in himself and that man's willfulness to sin proves this because it is the root of our guilt. What is the root of our guilt? The lack of holiness. We have none. We bring nothing to the table that is holy and so that is why we have a personal guilt before God. We have a communal guilt before God and we have a racial, a human race racial guilt before God. And before I say anything else, is anybody perhaps as warm as I am? Good. Turn the air conditioner on, somebody. All right, number three, the human mind it has a conscience that tells us when we do wrong. We learned this was the universal moral law of God. Okay, that's what we learned. Number four, the curse, the curse equals, if you were not here, write this down, the curse equals to offend at one point of God's law, 
universal or mosaic, mosaic law, to offend at one point is to make you guilty of all. That's how come Gentiles who have never heard the gospel are as lost as Jews who have never heard the gospel. They have offended God. And to break it at one place is to break it at all of them. And so number five, we saw then God's character and man's character. And you might want to write it down like this. This helped me a little bit. God's character is explicitly revealed. Explicit means it's spelled out. It is said. It is explicitly revealed in the law. God's law. So you want to read Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You're going to get a very good picture of the character of God. These are the things God likes. It's like, you know, you go out with friends. Where do you want to go? Well, I don't want to go to this barbecue place. I don't like it. And so they say, well, you know what? We don't want to go here because James doesn't want to go. They want to go where he likes to go. Where's he like to go? He likes to go to Brahms and sit in the ice cream tub. Okay, well, we'll go do that, you know. But if they had a bluebell, which they do at Blue Moose up here, you can go to Bluebell and get Bluebell there or, or Guadalajara. Just give us ice cream. It's fine. And the reality of it is so you want to do what... It pleases people. You want to do what, I mean, my wife like, doesn't like carnations. She likes tulips, right? You want to do what, she, my wife likes a clean floor, not socks and everything else we put on the floor, right? So you want, you want to try to do or at least acknowledge that she does. Can I get a witness? Oh, me. So um, the point is God's character is revealed in the law. The law is not a bad thing when you understand it in the context of his character and you understand the curse. Okay? And that's what we're talking about. And so it is explicit in the law, but the character of God is implicit in the entire Old Testament. It's implicit. It's all over the place. Okay? Now, what about man's character? Man's character is explicit in both the Old and the New Testament. It is spoken. The Old Testament is your mirror. It's my mirror. That's what we call it. It is the mirror. It's we can see who we are in the Old Testament, and it is, it is implicit. The, the character of man is implicit in the universal moral law of God in that we as Gentiles, God's law has been written on our hearts, and we did not ever have to be taught how to feel about something being right or wrong. Never. We never had to be taught that. Okay? And so here's the thing. Number six... What do we need to understand? Number six, we need to understand that God is infinitely holy and that no human has any holiness of any kind. Look at verse 10. The Bible says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For many who are under the works of the law are a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them. We have broken the law. We are law breakers. That means we are completely in the eyes of God, completely and totally unholy. And He cannot receive us because He is holy. That is His character. Okay? That's a great... This is good news. He cannot receive us. There will be nothing in His presence that is unholy. Nothing. Never has been, not is, and never will be. Nothing can be in His presence. And so this is where we begin. We need a Redeemer. Write that down. We need a Redeemer. I believe, as the Scripture says, at every 
tongue will confess and every, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I'm going to tell you something. For those of us that are believers, we also need to remember He is the Redeemer. And so if you're one of those that is sketchy in your feelings or your emotions or your knowledge about the assurance of salvation, you need to become familiar with the term Redeemer. A Redeemer. See, we are cursed and we're not righteous. Therefore, we cannot live by faith. Now, let me show you something, friends. Because we are cursed, we, the Bible says in Ephesians that we are dead in trespasses and sin. So any faith that we demonstrate towards God is a dead faith. Why? Because we're dead. That's what the Bible says. We're dead in trespasses and sin. So a person may have faith. The question is, the Bible talks not about a dead faith. It talks about a living faith. What kind of faith does one have? Is it a dead faith? Oh, I have faith. Oh, good. But see, when you understand grace, you realize, okay, wait a minute, I understand the concept of faith, but what is my, what is, if, if I get grace then, what is the context of my faith? Is it a living or a dead faith? You see, faith of a cursed person is a cursed faith, right? They're under the curse. And so if they're cursed, then what does the curse mean? They're condemned. And what does the condemnation mean? They're dead, right? So you can have dead faith, okay? So when you think about it, look right here at verse 10. For as many as are the works of the law. Notice it doesn't say works of the faith. It says works of the law. What are works of the law? They are dead works. Right? Why? They're cursed. Because to break one is to break them all. The more you practice it, the curse is so terrible, the more you're going to break. Right? 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 Makes logical sense. It's not hard. And so here's the thing. Dead faith, write this down, dead faith is no faith. Dead faith is no faith. We need a living faith. We need a living faith. The Bible says we need a living faith where we, where we love and we love mercy and we show it towards others. We love and we show mercy towards others. A living faith that um, to, to take it to, the, to the, uh, the neediest in our community. A living faith is, is in, listen, a living faith is in a living one, Right? A living faith is in a living one. If I have a dead faith because I say, well, I've done this, so therefore I'm this, but I'm not redeemed, then therefore my faith is a dead faith. And what is my faith in? What I just said I did. And what did I do? I did as a dead man. Right? So we need a redeemer. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. So what is living faith? Living faith is obedient faith. This is where James tells you in James chapter 2. He says, you have faith? Good. I will show you, I will demonstrate to you my faith by my works. What works was he doing? The law of God. Was he doing it to be saved? No. He was doing it because he was doing it to please the Lord, the one who redeemed him. The one who redeemed him. It's like writing a thank you letter 
to somebody that's done something nice to you. I had just the most marvelous chocolate pie the other night. I, I know I can write a thank you letter to it, but I, I know exactly how to make that person stay that brought it. And uh, because I've eaten it so slowly, the pie plate is still at my house, but there's enough left to eat the rest out of the pie plate. So that's good. But you want to do something nice because they've done something good. So here's what happened. Do you remember we talked about the covenant of works? Remember that last week? The covenant of works, you have to be perfectly holy as the covenant of works. If you fail, you've messed it up. Where did this covenant get established? In the garden. Where did it fall apart? All the way at Genesis chapter 2. They made it to Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17. It all blew up. The covenant of works was over. What is the covenant of works? The covenant of works is this. You must be perfectly obedient to the law. Many people today, good, well-meaning people today, believe they are, can lose their salvation because they still believe they cannot be good enough to do the works of God. And what's different with them and me is simply this. They're still trying. I gave up a long time ago. I have a redeemer. But so here's what I want you to understand. If the covenant of works says that I must obey the law perfectly, then what does the covenant of grace say? The covenant of grace says, I must obey faith. I must have obedient faith. I must have obedient faith. What is obedient faith? That's what is truly meant by the term saving faith. I must have obedient faith. The demonstration in my, through the works of the Spirit in my life, no longer the works of the flesh, to please God according to His Scripture, according to His character. And so we are cursed and we are not righteous. We cannot keep the law. The Bible says this. In fact, right here and it says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in the things written in the book of the law. Folks, that's Deuteronomy 27 verse 26. And then in verse 11 he goes on and he says, Now that no one is justified... Now, that no one is justified before the law of God is evident, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice, that is Habakkuk 2 verse 4. That's Habakkuk 2 verse 4. And then in verse 12, he says, However, the law is not of faith. Okay? Why? The law is of works. It's not of faith. The law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. So what has Paul just done? Paul does something very interesting right here. He pits Habakkuk 2.4 against Leviticus 18.5. He pits it against each other to teach a point. He says the righteous will live by faith, right? The righteous will live by faith, but those who practice the law have to live by them, and they have to live by it perfectly. So the question then is this. What are you living by? Okay, the law, or are you living by faith? Well, Paul says you can't. You need a redeemer to take care of the curse. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Can you say amen? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He didn't just redeem us. He became a curse. Okay? For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. That's Deuteronomy 21-23. So what do we say when we need a Redeemer? Well, here's, here it is. You write this down. 
by having a Redeemer, this mean, it means this. We need to be transformed from bondage without hope to freedom with a future. To be transformed from bondage, transformed, transferred from a bondage of, of, of uh, without hope to a freedom with a future. How did this happen? How can this be done? There is only one way it can be done. God must receive a payment for the price. There has to be a payment made. There has to be a payment price. A price is required for this transformation. So what happened? Jesus Christ, when He walked on the earth, the New Testament tells us He satisfied the righteousness of God. fully The full God-man, fully human, fully God, two natures, one divine, one human, and yet He was without sin. He was without sin. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of God. Then what did He do? He satisfied the justice of God. He satisfied the justice of God. And then we read that He satisfied the wrath of God. In verse 13 it says He became the curse. He became a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse having become the curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is He who hangs upon a tree. Let me tell you something. This is, this is altering to me. You see, here's what Jesus did in those three things. For you, friend, and for me. This is for the believer. Jesus Christ put away our sin. Amen? He put it away. He put it away. And using a fountain pen and sweating, put your ink away too. Now I can't read. So he, what did He do? He reconciled us to God. Where is that? Romans 5.11 and Colossians 1.19 and 22. He ended, he ended God's wrath against us. That's propitiation. That's Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26, the greatest of all the passages of Scripture on grace. And then here's something else, and this is what is so important that you learn. I can stop at this point that you learn this. If you struggle with your salvation, if you struggle believing that you cannot keep your salvation, I cannot give you a pithy statement. I have to give you the truth. And here is the truth. Your salvation is not kept by you. It is kept by Jesus because on the cross, not only was our sin put away, not only was God satisfied, but the cross was a place known as an event of substitution. Write that down. It is an event of substitution. You see, write this down. Write this down. It's an event of substitution. Here it is. I want you to get this. Jesus did not die as a martyr. Jesus did not die as a martyr, and He did not die as an example. Jesus Christ died as a substitute. He died as a substitute. That means Jesus bore the retribution in our place that was due us because we have broken the law of God and because there is nothing in us holy. And so consequently, 
all of the guilt, all of the shame, everything we have done, we are doing and will do. Jesus Christ went as the substitute for what purpose? To redeem you. And that's why we call Him Lord. Amen? So, what does the Bible say then? I showed you right now we need a Redeemer. Number two, the Redeemer became the curse. The Redeemer became the curse. The only way to be set free from the law's authoritative pronouncement of guilt and sin's use of the law to increase transgression is for the sentence of the law to be executed. And the sentence of the law demands death. The sentence of the law demands death. So the only way to be set free is there has to be death. And this occurred in Christ as our substitute. Now this is the best part. This occurred as Christ as our substitute, number one. Number two, there is no double jeopardy. There's no double jeopardy. You cannot be tried again. Christ cannot be crucified again. You can't send your way out of it. It's, it's paid in full. Amen. There's no devil deputy. Number three, Jesus bore the punishment of our crime. This is Romans 7 verse 4 and Romans uh, 3, 21 and 26. He bore the punishment. He took the retribution of God. And then since we have been declared righteous in Christ, the Bible says since we have been declared righteous in Christ, the universal moral law of God that is written on the hearts of Gentiles and the law of Moses that has been given to the Jews can no longer condemn or curse us. It cannot be done. Any genuine, spirit-filled, born-again believer knows there is no possible way for them to become a legalist. Not because legalism is a way to get to salvation. They cannot become a legalist because there is no longer a law to legally ist to. Amen? It is totally antithetical. So someone says, well, Pastor James loves the law. He's a closet fundamentalist and all that stuff. Why would I love the law? Because it shows me the character of God. It shows me that His truth is what matters. It doesn't, it, it, whether it matters to you or not, that is an issue of concern regarding the flock that I pastor. But whether it matters to all those people in the courthouse, that is not my concern. I'm not responsible for them. But for you, I am. I've, we must have truth. And Jesus Christ is the substitute. So when you think, well, I can lose my salvation, the answer is no, you can't because Jesus stood in your place condemned. He was your substitute. That's why we call it the substitutionary penal atonement of Jesus Christ. This word substitute. So watch this. You say, well then where did I get this righteousness? Look over here to Romans 6 and I think I can finish. Uh, go over here to Romans 6. Let me read something for you. I did a study this morning sitting at my desk. I got here at 3.45. I was so excited. It's okay. I slept all day yesterday and went back to bed as soon as I could. It was a good day of rest. I'm rested today. I think I will have lunch today. So you had, so watch this. Look with me at Romans 6, 6 through 7. Now folks, I can't give you great illustrations on this because there's nothing that will touch this. Okay? I don't believe that myth anyway. There's nothing to touch this. Watch this. Knowing this, verse 6, 
knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. There you go. See, it was done away with that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now underline that word slave. For he who has died, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now here's the thing. That doesn't mean you and I are going to stop sinning. We're going to keep sinning. Listen, when God gave the law and He told them to execute the law, He knew they would execute the law imperfectly. But He didn't cause them to do it. When they did what they did and executed the law as they were supposed to, He knew they would not do it perfectly. He also knew they were going to give them a Redeemer. And that Redeemer would, would do the job. That's called the, the, the covenant of redemption. It goes into eternity past. God's always planned to save. Always planned. And so watch this. Watch this. What does it mean, the power of sin over your life? The phrase power of sin comes from being slave to sins. I want slave to sinning. I want to show you something I found this morning playing with the Greek. And I can tell you without using one of the words. The power of sin, I want you to write this down. The power of sin in your life is broken. The power of sin in your life is broken according to the scripture. Romans 6, 5 through 11 is broken. Now, what does it say? It says the body of sin is done away with. The body of sin is done away with. So I went and looked at that word body in the Greek. Watch this and listen. Do you know what that word is? It's not body. The Greek word is personification. Personification. Think about what that means for a moment. You as the personification of sin has been done away with by Christ on the cross. Now folks, that's enough to stand up and dance. You say, I don't feel it. It doesn't matter what you feel. Feelings are what? A gauge, not a guide. What's your guide? The Word, not your feelings. Maybe one day you will feel it. But let me show you this. He says the body of sin, the body of sin is done away with. That is the personification. That it means the physical and immaterial. That means your body, soul, and spirit. It's done away with. The personification in sin in you, the personification, this is how God now sees you. It's not how you see each other, but it's how God sees you. You are no longer the personification of sin because Jesus became sin. That you who have no righteousness may have the righteousness of God. Amen? But that's not all. He says no longer a slave. Notice the text. The very last verse, the very last thing in verse 6 or 7. No longer a slave to sin. Do you know what that means? No longer dominated by it. No longer dominated by it. Therefore, I am dead to sin and alive to faith. That's how, I'm show, that's how we have seen here that a person under the curse, though they may have, though they may have, oh, I'll snooze, though they may have faith, if they're dead, it's dead faith. But what has God given us? A living faith. Where does He tell us that? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is, this, it is of the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. The subject that is being emphasized there is not grace. The subject is faith. 
and that's the gift. The gift that's given to you is a living faith. You know why? Because it has to come from one who is alive. It cannot come from someone who is dead. The only thing a dead faith is, is no faith. So what does God give us? He gives us the gift of faith. Did not Paul say there is nothing that we have that has not been given to us? That is why even the ability to believe is of the Lord. Because what we could not do for ourselves, Jesus Christ did as the perfect sacrifice who stood as our substitute, having not only lifted the curse off of us, but becoming the curse. Amen? And so therefore, what does that mean? It means this, and I got this little bitty card here, and I don't have to say anything off my notes. It's this little card right here. Here it is. Write down the word imputation. Imputation. I-M-P-U-T-A-T-I-O-N. Imputation. I am an imputationist. Maybe you're an imputationist. I don't know. But I am. If I was at a theological meeting, they'd say, what are you? I'd say I'm an imputationist. I've used this term with you six years ago because it's posted on my lamp in my study when I converted to being an imputationist. Im imputationist. Here it is, and this is how I'm going to close the message is with a question. When you take all of this that I've said, there is nothing complicated about this except too much information for you to write down. That's why you'll get a Xerox copy of it. The ultimate question really boils down to this today in the world we live in. It is the question you ask yourselves. It's this question. What is the grounds for our justification? That's the bottom line. Truly, what is the ground, or what is the ground on which we are justified? Is it our righteousness? Is it our righteousness? Or is it an alien righteousness that doesn't come from us? What is called extra nos? E-X-T-R-A, new word, nos, an alien righteousness, an alien justification. Ustia alianum, alianum, an external justification, an external righteousness coming to us. Let me show you why this is the issue today, because of where we live. We live right here in the heart of North Texas Roman Catholicism. There are many more social Catholics up here than there are religious Catholics, but those that are religious Catholics are very, very sincere. And we have done them no favor and in fact maligned them by saying this about them, that they believe in salvation by works. Because Roman Catholics do believe you cannot be saved without grace. You cannot be saved without grace. This comes from the Council of Trent, in fact the sixth session long ago, they believe you cannot be saved without grace. In fact, they believe you cannot be saved without faith in Jesus. They believe that. You and I believe that. But they believe that plus something else. But don't people that don't believe that, that are Protestants, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, don't they really live more like Catholics, though? 
they struggle with their salvation, they struggle with these other things, whether it be church tradition or whatever, or they use their feelings as a guide instead of a gauge. Right? Can I get a witness? So let me tell you something that happened historically. Historically, at the Council of Trent, at the sixth session, they discussed this years and years and years and years and years ago, back long before we were ever anything, like, you know, before the 10th century. They said that the church came together and said it's grace, faith, and Christ plus one, plus something else. Plus, what is the plus one? Plus you. What have we just learned from the Apostle Paul? Mm -mm. No, it's not. The only thing, again, you bring to your salvation is your sin, which necessitates your salvation. That's it. That's a hard thing to swallow, especially when you believed all of your life, not knowing that you're view of salvation was more Catholic than it was Protestant. Believing more about faith than you did understanding about grace because what they did is the Protestant Reformation said, no, we don't start with faith, we start with grace. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone as revealed in the Scripture alone for the glory of God alone. Sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, sola uh, scriptura, sola Deo gloria. And it turned the Roman Catholics inside out because all of a sudden they said, no, they're teaching now the Bible, what it says, and we have already changed that. And now if we let these people have Bibles, then you'll have a pope in every pulpit and a theologian in every pew. And we will not be able to do it. And on top of that, we do it in Latin and they speak German and French. Don't you dare let anyone translate it. So what did they do? They hunted down those men like Martin Luther, but God preserved him because he gave us a great statement. And I want you to hear this. So you understand what this whole thing boils down to. It's called simil ustis et picator. Simultaneously justified while a sinner. Simel ustis et picator. Simultaneously justified while a sinner. Why? Because our justification is an alien justification. Why? Because our righteousness is an alien righteousness. What happened? It's not my righteousness. It's not anything. It is what Christ has given to me. And the word for that is in your New Testament called imputation. He has imputed that to me. See, my mother's faith cannot save me. My daddy's biblical knowledge cannot save me. The teaching they gave me at the kitchen table and the pastors I study and the preachers and the professors, they can't save me. But not only that, I can't save myself. Why? Because I have to have an alien righteousness. I have to have an alien justification. What could make that possibly happen? Somebody standing in my place condemned. Becoming my substitute. I would never measure up. I don't measure up. I never have measured up. But there is one who has. Isn't that something? And so watch this.
Most of us, all of us, have grown up hearing this because we have lived our lifetime where television ministry has come to bear. Okay, I got an interesting thing I need to show some of y'all this morning. There's a seminary out in California that is starting a new seminary master's program on how to be a rock star senior pastor. And I think I need to go. It it is how to become a senior pastor that absolutely is a rock star. And And they're offering a course next year on how to become the most awesome worship leader ever. And so I'm I'm really going to look into this. I don't know if it's a master's or doctorate, but I think I need to go do that because, you know, after all, we only got 60 people. Right? You agree? By the way, this comes from a thing called the Babylon Bee. It's absolutely not true, and I wouldn't dare do that. But if you want to read it after church, I'll show it. It's absolutely hysterical. It came out this morning. Or Or did it come from you, Rick? Did you start the seminary? I don't know. Anyway, I've got it. Ladies and gentlemen, as I close, let me close with this that you're most familiar with. All of us in this room prior to this message perhaps at least believed that all humanity is desperately ill. It is desperately ill and dying. It is desperately ill before God. And it is on its deathbed. And every individual person on this earth is on that deathbed. And what lies between them and heaven or hell is that God did 99% of all the work. He prepared a medicine. He prepared a vaccine. And that... God did all that 99% and He comes to each person God willing. And He comes with that medicine and He comes with the spoon and He pours that medicine into that spoon and He holds it in front of the person's mouth and the only thing the person has to do is open their mouth. He's done 99% but they have to do the 1% and swallow the medicine. And that 1% is huge because that 1% will separate you between heaven and hell. You have heard this your entire adult lives. You've heard it preached and God knows I've preached it. I'd stopped preaching it about the third year of my pastoral ministry that you have to open your mouth. So really, does it matter that God did 99% when it all hangs on the balance of you opening your mouth? All of a sudden, the minority wins, not the majority. But you see, it's not that way at all. Because what the Scripture reveals to us is this. It reveals this. We are dead in trespasses and sin. And because we're dead in trespasses and sin, we have to have a Redeemer. And the Father imputed the sins of His people to Jesus. And here's what I want you to see. He placed on His person, He placed on His person, on the cross, our sin. And then He condemned Jesus in His flesh. Which is exactly how the power of canceled sin or the power of sin was broken. Both, what? In our body and in our flesh. Isn't it interesting? 
So here's what he did. On the cross, he placed on Jesus, the person of Jesus, on the cross he placed the sin of anyone who would believe. The whosoever will, the Bible says. He placed upon Jesus Christ. And then he condemned him in his flesh. He killed him stone cold dead. Why? Because the law had to be fulfilled. And what is the law? The sentence of death. And so Jesus had to be executed. But you see, here's the thing. There's one other thing I haven't told you. It's not just that Jesus died. But one of the other parts of this is simply that Jesus Christ had a perfect record of obedience. And that is imputed to us as well. And Paul says it plainly. I have been crucified with Christ. That I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what that means? You and I have been passed eternally from the covenant of work to the covenants of grace. And God says he will save, he will keep, and he will enjoy, not lose one that belonged to him. And how do we belong to him? It is through the external, alien, foreign righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been applied to us both in the payment for the penalty of sin, the satisfaction of His offering, and His perfect obedience. So what does that mean to me then if I am a curse-lifted believer? It means this, my faith is living, so what do I want to do? I naturally now want to please my God because of the great hymn as it says, Hallelujah, what a Savior. See, friends, you need to remember something. I've been telling you this for a long time, and now I'm going to say something else. I have been saying a long time, we live in a culture that is inoculated with the gospel. What we need to become is a people that rem remember the uniqueness of Jesus. There's nothing like Him. In eternity, Jesus will always be our Redeemer in eternity. And all that He has, He gives it to us. And He had His flawless redemption, His flawless obedience, His perfect righteousness satisfied the covenant of works so that you and I, by grace, through faith in Christ Jesus, may live under the covenant promise of His grace for now and forevermore. You that are in Christ are in Christ forever. Amen? Amen. I'm going to just have you stand and I'm going to close us out. I've got about ten more minutes of liturgy to do, but I'm not. We've had enough. Let's say amen, Lord. Amen? Praise the Lord.
Father, we thank you so very much for the alien justification and the foreign righteousness that has been given to us by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. We thank you that our faith is not even our faith. That in fact, as the scripture shows, regeneration precedes faith in Ephesians 1 and in Ephesians 2. And we thank you for the gracious work of that. Father, for those that struggle with their state of grace, Father, let it be settled in their heart by the testimony of Scripture that we have shared today. There never was anything they could do to keep it. There was never anything they could do to earn it. There was never anything they could do to enjoy it were it not for Christ alone. And what Christ begins, He finishes. I thank you that the Word says, I will therefore not cast you out. I will not leave you as orphans. Father, it is my prayer that we would spend some time today and meditate on this truth. We have a Redeemer that has redeemed us, that has stood as a substitute for our sinning, our past, present, and future sin. He did not come to take sin away from us. He came to take its bondage from us, its power over us, and its curse that is on us and in us. And He gave us the very righteousness of Himself through His obedient life and His sacrificial death. So, Father, I thank You. I thank You for Jesus Christ. This is the reason we sing. This is the reason we pray. This is the reason that we hallow Your name. You are truly unique. You are the lover of men's souls. And we cannot be anything but less than grateful or worshipful than being obedient to you with an obedient faith to demonstrate and magnify the character, the love, the mercy and graciousness, the holiness and justice of our God. I pray you would cause our light to shine before men and women that they will ask, Truly, what is this hope that is within you? I pray these things believing as we go in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.